We are in the midst of a series about change here at Infuse. If you've been here for the last three weeks, we've been talking about change in its variety of forms, and we've been basing that on the story of a couple of kings back in the Old Testament. Uh, so we're with King David. We've been with King Saul and King David along the way. And today's the wrap-up of the series, and we're going to talk about a different kind of change. We've been talking about kind of more specific kinds of change, so I've got a little story to contrast what we've been talking about. Um, but yeah, some of the things that uh, Pastor Taylor and Stephanie have talked about over the last three weeks is that change generally leads to fear, right? Because there's the unknown. You just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and then, of course, as change leads to fear, it leads to us uh, adjusting our behavior sometimes. So when we're afraid, we change right or wrong. Pastor Taylor had this great story about living in Seattle. If you were here last week, there's videos of cars sliding down hills in Seattle in ice storms. And uh, he said one time he was trying to get up this mile-long hill, and he may have adjusted his uh, adherence to the stop signs and the speed limits and all of that because he just really wanted to get home that night. But we do that, right? When we're afraid, we adjust how we deal with the world. And some of the responses that we've talked about, some of the things that can help us as we go through life are leading with curiosity and compassion, like responding with that way when somebody's coming at you with the spears. If you've also been here, we've been talking a lot about spears. So back in the, the story of King Saul and King David, as King Saul was afraid of David's rising to fame with killing Goliath, he tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, a literal spear. And so we have this fancy prop. It'll come back at some point, but Pastor Taylor is very excited to point it at the camera and all of this. So go back and watch that if you want just like a little bit of terror or a lot of terror if you're <laughs> at the camera back there. And then the other thing to do to remember to, to help us just like check ourselves as we're trying, if, as we're thinking like, oh, maybe I should speed or as I'm late for work or something is to shine a light and do it right. So that's a quick recap. But to to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today, that video is the kind of change that is just like you can't really do anything about. He had that moment there as the wave was coming towards him, like he was riding it and then done. And if you watch, I spent some time watching videos of surfers talking about their biggest wipeouts, and it's, it does not sound like a ton of fun, at least at that level of wave, because there was one guy who's like, yeah, I started skipping, and then there was a rock, and my shoulder just shattered. I'm like, oh my, <laughs> what, what is happening? Um, so not for me, uh, but it's that kind of thing that you just know you're not going to get your way out of, and you just have to kind of get through it. Um, so to contrast that, we've been talking about the sorts of moments where you can respond. And my mom was going to be here this morning. She's not here this morning, but this was in honor of her. So little Devin, and I remember this very clearly, at the age of six or eight or something like that, I go to the doctor, and I can't remember if she had informed me beforehand or, like, during the experience, they're like, you're going to get shots or shot or shots. Like, and so, like, the panic, right? Your panic level starts to go up. You're like, what's going to happen? Is this going to hurt? And the nurse is sitting there on this little rolly chair, like, you know, the ones that they have in doctor's offices so they can roll up and, like, check, check everything. And she gets closer with the needle and gets closer. And naturally, as a kid does, you know exactly where to throw that spear, right? So I kicked her across the room. And she rolled all the way, I, at least to my memory, <laughs> she rolled all the way to the back of the room, right? And then they had to come back and, like, pin me down and do all of that, which may or may not resemble an experience that my wife had with my eldest child. So, yeah, I'll be doing that one next time. So I'm looking forward to it. It's great. Uh, but that's like a very specific response. You know where to pick up the spear and throw it. But with a wave, right, you just, like, there's not enough spears in the world. And we had an experience like that in my house about 
two, no, year and a half ago now. So here's a picture of my two twins. This is right after they fell asleep, uh, after I fed them with bottles. And now was the part where, do I get them to their crib safely or do I spend the next hour and a half rocking them to sleep? It's a moment of terror, but they also look very, very cute. So we put them to bed one night and we're sitting on the couch and we're like, ah, all four are in bed. Now we can rest. And we, we watch TV for like 15 minutes and then like 20 minutes later we hear like a in the bedroom. We're like, that's a weird sound. We're like, ah, we're not going to check it. But thank God, literally, that we did check um, and we found both of them had like, this is going to be a lot, so just get ready. If your parents are here, you're like, ah, this is fine. But if you're, so projectile vomited all over the bed and we get him to the hospital and like, we pick him up and the one is like gray and floppy, like the, the weirdest thing. Like I'd never seen somebody literally turn gray before, but she was gray. And the other one was a little bit better, but we're like, something happened. And so at that point, you just call 911, like, try to wake him up. And thankfully, like the police officers and the, and the ambulance came and it was all okay. They're allergic to chicken, of all things. Um, but we didn't know that at that point. Like, you just don't know. And you don't really have any response other than that first, that call to 911, and then you wait. So that's the kind of change that I want to talk about today. Those moments where there's no visible outlet, where you're just like, I don't know what to do right now. So as we talk about this story, I want to go back to King David as we're going through here. Um, but first, yeah, thank you. Um, but just to set the stage, right, we've all had these moments where let's say your finances are not great in a, in a given moment and all of a sudden the furnace goes out in the middle of winter and then you're like, okay, well, I can either pay for that and, this, and the salesman, the guy who comes out to fix your furnace is like, yeah, you could replace this for $5,000. You're like, what? I've been out of work for two months and I just don't know how this next credit card bill is going to go. Or like you've had medical diagnosis on medical diagnosis and they're like, well, we thought you had this one thing, but you have this other thing and now you're going to have to switch medications. Whatever that situation is, whether you've been there or not, like we're all going to hit that point at some point. And that's kind of the, the terrifying part too, is that at some point the hits are going to keep coming and you're just going to get to that point where you don't know what you're going to do. You're going to be overwhelmed. And so King David got to a point like that in his life. He lived a very up and down sort of life. And we've been talking about the early part of his life in the first part of this sermon series where he was not yet King David. He was just David, right? But at this point, he's King David. King Saul has died at the hand of the Philistines. The, the Israelite people crowned David king and ushered in an era of prosperity and military conquest. And just like the kingdom of Israel was in a really good place. But in David's family, things were not so great. And so we're going to talk about a number of kings today. So stick with me. Uh, we're going to go through a number. I've got a little slide here of, of, of a bunch of crowns. There's going to be five. Kind of, We've already done King Saul. We've done King David now. We talked about Jesus a little bit uh, by inference. We've got God, of course. And then there's going to be this fifth king that we're going to talk about today. And so to get into that, uh, here's a little bit of a description of this wannabe king. And this is one of David's sons. In all of Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. 
If you're out there in the dating world, I do not recommend this as a, as a compliment, right? There's no blemish in you. I can't find a fault anywhere. I've been working really hard, but no blemishes to be found. Uh, so don't do that. But he's a good-looking guy, right? And like the things that these ancient scribes put down, we think maybe it was Samuel, the, the prophet, or one of his other prophets that wrote down this original account. And it's really interesting these are not that long of accounts, but the things that they put in are almost as interesting as the things they leave out. So like, clearly this was an important part of the story, that this guy was handsome and people thought he, he was a pretty good-looking dude. And so we're about 3,000 years ago. David's the king. He has a bunch of kings and, or kids, and there's Absalom as the, the runner-up to the throne. He's going to be king someday. He's not king yet. And he's the kind of guy who is willing to take things into his own hands. One of his brothers had done some terrible things, and so he's like, I'm going to take care of this, and he kills his brother. And then he has to run away because that's not a done thing, right? And so, but his dad wants to be reconciled with him, and finally he comes back to Jerusalem, but his dad doesn't want to see his face because he's really conflicted, right? And so Absalom's response, in addition to like killing his brother because that was the response that he decided to have. This next verse is interesting. So he lives in two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab, who was like the king's right hand, essentially, in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, hey, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. This is a guy who clearly doesn't have, like, he's willing to adjust right and wrong to get what he wants. And believe it or not, that gets him in front of David, and he's, like, sort of in the king's good graces, but there's just, there's a lot of tension there, right? And it goes on. This next slide is a picture of uh, something they've excavated. This is not mine. Pastor Taylor's very good about these things. He gave me this because he's really into the, the biblical archaeology and the excavations. And this is something that they found not too long ago, that's a judgment seat. And so the king, or whoever was in charge of a city back then, would sit at this seat at the entrance to the city and sit in judgment because people would come with these complaints, right? They would have an issue with the boundary lines that their neighbors had done or some, some issue with justice. And that was the king's role, to be there and to mete out justice and to fix the problems of the people. Like, that was a big responsibility that the king had. And we can kind of infer from the story that David's not doing that based on this next verse, which is where in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men. He's a big deal. He's got the limo. He's got people to run ahead of him. He's got paparazzi. Like, I am a big deal is what he's saying with this. And he'd get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anybody came with a complaint to be placed before the king, he would be like, hey, what town are you from? And the person would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And he's like, okay, so like, I have jurisdiction over this, sort of. Then Absalom would say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. Kind of like that coworker who maybe like, you complain a little bit every once in a while because you have legitimate concerns, and he's like, I just wish somebody would hear you, rather than saying, yeah, we should go talk to our boss about that, or talk to HR, or whatever. They're like, I just, if I was the boss, I would hear you. I would be there for you, but I'm, I'm, we're just sad that there's nobody in, in the position of power. So rather than like going to his dad and saying, hey, there's some legitimate concerns here, he's trying to, to 
make some unrest, right? And this is the kind of guy who's shown that he wants to take things into his own hand. So this next one is, and he would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. And this is straight up like, I should be king. Guys, this, this wouldn't be a problem if I was king. This would be okay. And so we're at this point where there's just a lot of unrest. And this next one, he continues on this path where at the end of four years, which is a pretty long time, right, to sit outside the city gate and complain, he said to the king, let me go to Hebron. And side note for that, that's where David was king for seven years before he moved to Jerusalem. So there's a precedent set there where if you're in Hebron, Hebron, whatever, however you pronounce it, um, you have sort of a claim to be king because that's what David did. He was there while Saul was still king, but David was like the people were interested in David becoming king at some point. He says, to fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. We don't know if he actually did that. Based on the way he's been handling life, there's, that might be suspect claim. While your servant was living in Geshur at Aram in exile, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. So he heads off, and, but before he heads off, David has this choice, right? He's at this moment where he knows what's going on. He's seen... You would assume he knows what's up with Absalom. His advisors have been like, hey, things are not going well. Your son's trying to take your place within the hearts of the people. And, and we don't know that part of the story. So again, it's really interesting what is left out and what's left in. But we, we come to this point where the king decides to say, go in peace. I trust you. And so Absalom went to Hebron. And then it goes on, right? It's like you see the natural progression here. The next part of the story says, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And so again, we come to a decision point for David. What is he going to do? The natural response would be this, right? There's a clear situation here. There's a clear precedent like he's king. Usurpers are dealt with in a certain way back in ancient times. You pick up your spear and you go after him. And that could have worked maybe. Like David was an acclaimed military leader. We have, actually we do have a record of how Absalom handled his military conquest. It was not good. So like there's a possibility where David could have just handled this with a spear and said, you know what, let's get up out of the city. We're going to go get him. Um, but that would lead to civil unrest. Or he could have stayed in the city, fortified the walls of Jerusalem. It's recorded that Jerusalem was one of the best defended cities in ancient times at that point, there was like one way into the city and David had been able to conquer it only by like coming through this one well. And he probably had that fixed after he became king, right? So there was a, like he could have stayed in Jerusalem and said, we're going to be here. He's going to come try to starve us out. He's not, it's not going to work. The people will come back to me. But either one of those things is going to result in a lot of casualties, a lot of civilian death probably, and just the kingdom being torn apart. And so David chooses in this moment with this kind of overwhelming situation where the kingdom's going to somebody else. And maybe he had seen this coming. Maybe it's a sudden surprise to him. But he says to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he's going to overtake us and put the city to the sword. And you can see where David's heart is there. He doesn't want 
this city that he cares about and these people that he cares about to be put to the sword because they probably would go down in flames with him, right? If he stuck it out with the city, Absalom would come in and everybody would die. And that's not what he wants. But maybe you go back a step in the story and you're like, David, why didn't you deal with this problem right then and there? Why did you let Absalom go? I don't know if that frustrates any of you. I know it seems like a decision point that could have gone differently to me. But if you look back at David's heart along the way, and if you look at God's heart for reconciliation, you can see that he's giving his son every chance to make the right decision, to come back and reconcile with his father. And even here, he's saying, we're going to get out of here. We're not going to pick up the spear, and we're going to leave the city. And so he goes. And he knew, David did, that God was in charge ultimately. And this next part of the story is really interesting too because it's just like a continuation of that heart posture where he said to the chief priest at the time, like the head of the church, take the ark of God back into the city because the chief priest, as David was leaving, was like, yep, we're good. Like, this is our king. We're going to go with the ark and all of the things like the presence of God on the planet earth. We're going to go with the king because God's with him. And David's response is, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and let it see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. So this is somebody with an immense amount of confidence, not in himself, but in what God wants to do. And if you look back on David's story to this point, he has made some serious mistakes along the way. Uh, it's, it's very interesting reading. You probably have heard the story of Bathsheba. There's David and Goliath. There's all his military conquests. And he has this track record at this point in his life of things work out when I trust God. Things do not work out when I don't trust God um, with that personal experience. And maybe not all of us have that sort of personal experience because maybe not all of us have lent have had to lean on God in that sort of way or have chosen to put our fate in God's hands in that like very serious sort of way. Because how many of us when faced with a giant would be like, you know what, I am going to trust in this stone that I've been practicing with for years, but at the same time, everyone is saying, I should take this armor and the sword and all of this. But he says, no, God's got this. And just that, that God confidence is something that I hope that all of us can maybe walk away with today, that when we question where that hope is coming from, where the possibility of overcoming this overwhelming situation comes from, that we can maybe consider that as an option. So as we keep going in the story, um, David says, send him back. And if you look at another part of the biblical story, you can see this directly reflected in what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, at this point, just to, to do a quick recap, right, there were many points along the way where Jesus had been said, you're going to be king, right? You're going to bring back the Davidic kingdom because that's where, he, like, he was an heir to David, and people had gotten it by the end of his ministry. They were like, oh, yeah, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was David. And so this oppressive empire that has been taxing us and crucifying people and putting down rebellions for the last hundred years, this Roman Empire, you're going to throw off those shackles and lead us back to an era of prosperity and peace and freedom and hope. And he's like, yes, but also not the way that you think it's going to go down. And clearly, 
He's not excited about some parts of this, right? Just in the same way that we're not excited about some parts of our life. Would I have signed up to deal, to go through that experience with my daughters that way? No, I would have said, let's have a, let's have a panel done and see what all of their allergies are, and then we're not going to feed them chicken for the next two years, and then we're going to go get tested, right? But instead, we had this whole vomiting episode, and we go to the emergency room and all of that. It's not the way we want to do it. And I'm not saying that's God's will. I never want to say that God is out to give us suffering, but he's there for us when things happen in a broken world. And that's what's reflected here. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Because he can see the path for all of us. And one of my favorite images from an author called George MacDonald is of Jesus in the throne room, right? Sitting with God at his right hand. And God is like, hey, it's time to do this plan that we've talked about for years and years and years since before eternity began. And Jesus is like, yep, let me hop down off this throne and head to earth and I will, I will get that done. But here in this moment, he's like, yeah, this also kind of sucks. <laughs> it's just not great. Um, but he can see the ultimate good for all of us and wants to go through with us because he cares for us. And I'm not saying it's going to be always that cut and dried and clear for all of us. Life is messy. Life is difficult. Um, So I want to bring us back to overwhelming circumstances. When we're faced with that situation where you're dealing with that that cancer diagnosis on top of like being estranged from your family and a friend isn't calling you back, or if your finances aren't great and your kids are not doing great at school and like now you have to deal with that— or you're just tired, and I know we're all going to be there. And maybe you're here online, in person, like you're at that point where like, you're like, today is going to go up or it's going to go down, or like it's been down for a while. And there's hope out there. And if you're in that situation, get all the help that you can and that you need. Because God put people in our lives, put resources in our lives. I know I can connect you with pastors Taylor and Stephanie if there are resources that you need, crisis counseling, whatever. Those things are there, but you're going to deal with these feelings, right? And there are responses to that. You can pick up a spear, and you can just start throwing it at whatever is coming your way. Whoever is causing you the problem, whether it's the boss who just increased your workload, or the kids who have gotten you up at 5.30 a.m. when they're supposed to be in bed until 6 a.m. after a, a late night of working really hard to deal with the mess that they made last night, right? It's really easy to pick this thing up and chuck it at the nearest person. But ultimately, that's not going to, it's not going to do anything, right? You're still going to be dealing with that feeling of overwhelm and that reality of that situation. And there's nothing that can really guarantee a pain-free life either. And that's the hard part of, of living a human life in, in a real world. But I want to ask, want us all to leave here and ask ourselves, when I face overwhelming, overwhelming circumstances, who will carry me through? And if we look back on these stories of these kings, I just encourage you to read back through for the thrilling narrative and like the rollicking story, um, but really ask yourself through the story of Saul and through the story of David and through the story of Absalom and even through the story of Solomon, um, David's successor, who carried them through? Who gave them that hope and that peace and that assurance? Um, And I hope you've known some people in your life that are like that, that just walk through life a little bit lighter than the rest of us. Sorry, I'm thinking of somebody very specific. Um, 
But she, yeah. So she was, like, there are people who are just amazing because they rely on God so fully. And even at the end of their life, right, they make it through in a way that I envy anyway. <laughs> and I hope to get to that point because they know that God will carry them through whatever that circumstance is. So do that. Ask yourself who that king is in your life and ask yourself if you're going to cut it. And I would submit that the answer is not, right? There ain't enough spears in the world to fix the problems. There's only, there are limits on all of us. So I'll just close by asking, I hope that these words, I want to ask, I'll, I'll say this. I hope that these words from Jesus can, can give us a little bit of that picture, right? So come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And he knew, right? He endured homelessness. He endured loss of family, persecution, like all the things that you can imagine Jesus went through it. There was this great, this is an aside, I'm going to keep it short, but there was this great um, poster in Portland one time, and it was, it was really simple, but it was like, Jesus dealt with homelessness. If you want help, call this number, right? And like, that's just such a picture that Jesus knows what we're going through at some level. If you're weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me from gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he's not saying that the trouble of life is going to disappear, but we're going to make it through just a little bit lighter and with a lot more hope. And if you look back at David one more time, another piece of the puzzle of seeing like why he was called a man after God's own heart was this the Psalms. You can read through what his heart was like, how he dealt with despair, how he dealt with anger, how he dealt with persecution. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since youth. From birth I have relied on you. You have brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. So whether that's you today and you feel super confident and you just trust God with everything, or if you're feeling really down and you're looking for somebody who is that sign to you, I hope that David can point us that way. And I hope that you have people in your life that will point you towards the fact that God can give us hope and that he can help us through those overwhelming circumstances. So I'm going to pray to close us today. God, we know that you went through the hard stuff of life. You went through homelessness and despair and temptation and just not having the things here on earth that sometimes we think will carry us through. And we know that you want us to have hope. You want good things for us in the same way that we want good things for the people that we care about, for our kids, for our parents, for our spouse. We pray today that if we walk away with nothing else, that we ask ourselves, where is our hope coming from? Who can carry me through this overwhelming circumstance that I'm in today, this insurmountable thing, or this thing that's been looming and that I know is going to hit me in like two weeks, or whatever it is down the road, that we can come back to this moment and say, God, we know that you'll carry us. And so I pray for all of us as we go forward this week, that whether we need that hope or whether we can give that hope or whether we can point someone back to you or we need to point ourselves back to you, that you're there for us, that your Holy Spirit is here and moving. In your name we pray, amen.